All right, gentlemen, I'm just going to get started here. We're in uh, our last uh, session on Romans 11, which we'll finish, I hope, in about 10 minutes. Now we're going to transition into chapter 12 through 16, which is the, the practical element of the book. And I'll get to that, introduce that in just a little bit. Um, I think I'm starting in verse 28, I think. Okay, good. So uh, just, I don't think I really need to remind anybody what we're doing here, but Romans 9, 10, 11 is Paul's discourse on the Jews and how they fit into God's plan. And he's defending throughout the, the, the three chapters, the thesis that God is not done with the Jewish people. He will fulfill his covenant promises to them. So he's, he's now going to conclude some things in his basic argument. As regards the gospel, they, they would be the Jewish people, are the enemies of God for your sake. Again, that, that sounds very intense and, and, and very uh, almost unkind, but he's focusing on just one thing, how they responded to the gospel. And they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And again, as we learned earlier, that does not mean every Jew did. Many always had a remnant and so on, but a point. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, again, what does he mean by that? As regards election, God is not done with them. He has chosen some to become his children by faith in his son because they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the forefathers, the patriarchs. Now, that's just a reference. That's a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. And all he's arguing there is that covenant is what fundamentally defines his relationship with them. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts that the Jewish people have received, those unique blessings that he's talked about throughout these chapters, those unique blessings, they've been chosen by God, and that that fundamental aspect and characteristics of the Abrahamic covenant. They didn't earn it, they didn't deserve it, they didn't merit it, but God gave it to them. And the calling of God, the calling is its really a, it's from the same word that we define as election, it's exactly the same word, but the calling of God to salvation, they will come to faith, are irrevocable. And so, all he's summarizing, if I can put it in, I think, the most succinct way you could put it in these two verses is, God will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. His promises are irrevocable. For just as you, and the you would be the Gentiles, non-Jews, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they, the Jewish people, too, have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And again, you saw him use that word, it's noon in Greek, translated now twice. So God is going to bring the Jewish people back to him. It's part of his plan. He will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. But as he said in that, in that same cluster of verses, how many times he's used the word mercy? You saw it in verse 29. You see it here in verse 30, 31. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now, what he's doing is he's tying the loose ends together. The all involves both Jew and Gentile, so that he may show mercy to all Jew and Gentile. So both the Gentiles had been in disobedience, but now have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. So the Jews who have fallen into disobedience because they rejected Jesus will experience mercy and will come to salvation. As we saw in verse 26 of chapter 11, when Christ comes back, all Israel that's alive at that time will be saved. In the words of Zechariah 12, they will look upon him and they pierce and believe. And then Paul, so in a way, these are just summary verses. I hope you follow them. Some reverses what he said, but now he's going to conclude the entire argument of chapter uh, 9, 10, 11 is a, a marvelous call to praise. Oh, the depths of the riches 
and wisdom and knowledge of God. And the, the riches, you know, as Americans kind of think of bank accounts and stocks and big homes, that's not the point. The riches of salvation, the riches and blessings of salvation, the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. I didn't hear an amen there. Because, <laughs> I mean, isn't that true? How unsearchable are his judgments. And that um, the word unsearchable, and that's a good translation of the word. It really is. But un- unsearchable, just think of, think of that word unsearchable. I'm never, no matter how much I study, no matter how much I meditate, and how much time I spend trying to master all this, I'm never going to understand everything God's doing. I'm never going to get it all. I'm never going to work through everything that he's doing, his judgments, his decisions, what he does, and how inscrutable are his ways. I always always define inscrutable as you can't unscrew it. That's probably not a very good way to put it. But Alan Scrutable, I mean, just it's impossible to figure it out. You just cannot figure it out. Everything that God's doing, his ways, the way he does things, the paths that he follows, the judgments and, and decisions that he make, he makes, are unsearchable and they're inscrutable. And so, I mean, that's just that's a common statement, but yet it's extremely profound. Jim, can we Back up just to the previous we, yeah, paragraph. Sure. Yep. Where do you want to go, Woody? Previous verse, I mean. It says, for okay. God has consigned all to disobedience. Can you explain what he, what it meant by consigned? Does he, <clears throat> he acknowledge that we've all had disobedience, or he is... He is uh, what does that mean? Consigned. The um, that's really a, it's really a good question, and you're you're uh, you're raising a, a translation question whether that word consigned is the best way to translate that. Um, it's it's almost like he's leaving a word out, Woody. For God has consigned the idea of this. God has consigned to judgment. All who have disobeyed. So what, what God God is consigning, he's he's made the decision and 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 the natural result of disobedience is his judgment. But oh you don't stop there, because then he continues that he may show mercy on all. He has consigned everyone to judgment, but he shows mercy on everyone, and the evidence of his mercy is the sending of Son Jesus who deals with the consequence of, of the disobedience. Right. The consignment began when he banished Adam and Eve. Yeah, that's, that's when it started. That's exactly where it started. And so you, you follow me? What, he, what he's stressing is all are under God's judgment, both Jew and Gentile. That's what he means by all there. But he also has shown mercy to all, Jew and Gentile, through Jesus. And as Fred just correctly said, the beginning of that started with Adam and Eve, but the ending of it is with Christ. And as he's been, he's been showing through the, the marvelous uh, text we've been studying, how God will fulfill his Abrahamic covenant promises to the Jewish people. And so, again, the, the, the conclusion of verse 3 is just a, a really marvelous conclusion. How unsearchable are his judgments, inscrutable his way. To drive home that point, he then goes back into the Old Testament, and he quotes from, it's Isaiah chapter 40 is what he's quoting from, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and following. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And so that second part, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, is actually from Job chapter 41. So what is he doing? He's going back from the Old Testament. He's saying, there are two things that are relevant here. And I love verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? The Lord did not ask me, Jim, what kind of day would you like me to create today? Give me counsel on that. If he would have asked me, you know what I've said? 
None of you would like it, but it's what I was saying. Lord, create a day where the high is 35, a gentle north wind, and in the afternoon we have some snow flurry. <laughs> but God didn't ask me that. I know every one of you in this room. This sounds perfect. Yeah. <laughs> to reach it. That's perfect. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Glenn. I'm glad you're, I think you're the only one in the universe that agrees with me when it comes to weather. <laughs> but nonetheless, the, po the point is God doesn't seek our counsel. And who knows his mind? And then uh, from Job, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And what Job's talking about, God, God doesn't seek a reward for the counsel you give him. He's not you know, hiring you as a counselor and he'll pay you $100 an hour. That's, that's what Job is saying. God's not like that. The point we learn from Romans 9, 10, 11 is God's sovereignty is real. His providence is real. And you're never going to figure out everything he's doing. His electing grace, chapter 9, is inscrutable. Yet the human responsibility and culpability as Jewish people is a fact, even though it's really difficult to put 9 and 10 together. And yet 11 shows that God's covenant promise to Israel are inviolable. They're irrevocable. He will fulfill those promises. I mean, I've studied Romans 9, 10, 11 for 30-some years. I still find them some of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. Because you're trying to put all of these pieces, God's sovereignty together with human responsible freedom, and the sovereignty of God in fulfilling his covenant promises. And all of those are true in chapters 9, 10, 11. So you sit back and say, sure, I'm glad I'm not running the universe. Because I would have no idea how to do all this. But God does. How unsearchable and inscrutable are his ways. And then he concludes. This is really a, a fantastic statement of, of, of how you and I should look at everything. For from him, the source, through him, the means, and to him, the goal, are all things. Isn't that good? If God is sovereign and the worshipful, majestic, powerful God we worship, then we can say, for from him, the source, through him, the means, to him, the goal, are all things. He created everything for a purpose. In my night, Sunday night class, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes, which has really, really been a great study about 90 people that come to that class. And I've had several people come up uh, after the class and they want to talk about the things that Solomon, because that is exactly where I'm at. And if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, it was written by Solomon at the end of his life. He's reflecting on his life. And what is really fascinating is he makes a judgment, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Vanity means empty, meaningless, purposeless. If I leave God out, things don't make sense. And that my favorite illustration, because he tests that thesis throughout the book, if I leave that out, he, he makes the observation, here I am, this is Solomon, very wealthy man. I've made really good judgments. I've made good decisions. I've been wise. And one of the results of all that, and I'll put it in 21st century language, I have a well-balanced portfolio so that I can absorb all the shocks of the economy. I, I really, and I've done well. But you know what? I'm about to die. I'm going to pass all this on to my children. And they're a bunch of fools. And then he asks this question. Why did I do this? And if you leave God out of the picture, but if you put God into the picture, that's what he does. It brings him back to center. Brings him back to center. God is in the picture. Because from him, the source, through him, the means, to him, the goal, are all things. One of the themes that comes out of the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think is a theme in the book of Romans, is everything we do has eternal significance. This is very It should be, Bill. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm serious, and I, I, know what, I know how you meant that statement, but that is, that is really the proposition that you and I should adopt, that everything we do has eternal significance to God. Solomon is arguing the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't understand why I work so hard until I remind myself that God is my boss. 
that God is the one who's superintending all things. And so I begin to see my work, and my, the word he uses is toil. And I see that if God's in the picture, it makes sense. Paul picks up in that Colossians 3.22 and following. We work to the glory of God because he's our boss. And that, that's essentially what he says. The Lord Christ is our boss. And it's so important to God that he has an eternal reward for that. So I'm just working around. Paul is dealing with some very profound things in the book of Romans. I'm trying to bring it down to a very practical level, too. From him, source. Through him, means. To him, goal are all things. If you really believe that, that means everything you do is significant to God. Getting good night's sleep? <laughs> Seriously, is, is that important to God? He made our bodies such that it is important for our bodies to sleep. A lot of things goes on in our brain, a lot of things go on when we sleep. Joe's going to sleep right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, is it important to brush your teeth? My wife, by the way, my wife found out about the water pick. Oh, my glory. It's almost like the kingdom of Jesus has come. I mean, she just she said, my teeth are so clean and squeaky clean in my tongue. She said, this is why I didn't get one of this long time ago. And I said, honey, I don't really know. I don't even know how long I've been on the market. But, I mean, all of a sudden, the eternal significance of brushing your teeth has a new meaning to my wife, being a good steward of what God has given us. So Paul then concludes in this marvelous doxology, to him be glory forever. Amen. You know, the flip side of that for me is all those stupid things I did many years ago. Now, good news is we're forgiven, but you still did all those stupid things. You feel some remorse for that. Yeah, yes. I know exactly what you're saying. But you're right, Bill. We have to be able to look back. I love Philippians 3.14. The things that are part of my past I count as rubbish. But I press on to the high calling of the prize in Christ Jesus. My past is taken care of. Because I did a lot of stupid things. I was not a good steward of a lot of things. And that's not what Bill meant, but that's what I mean. <laughs> but you look back on that, but it's just, I honestly, I think it is true for people as they get older, but I honestly believe what Solomon is saying. If God is out of the picture, ultimately, not very many things make sense. And you really press the question, why do I do what I do? I'd love another part. Can I do one more thing? Another other part is in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Where Solomon says, I'm going to analyze the two opposites of the human condition, to be wise and to be a fool. He says, I, I, I've observed that a wise man, he knows what he's doing. He's got strategies and plans for the future. His tactical goals are all worked out and all that. And this guy, has, it, it, I see it's better to be wise. But then I look at the fool. The fool doesn't plan for anything. He just lives for each day. And he eats and he drinks. He's married. He's enjoying life each day. He's not planning for the future. But he says, as I observed it too, I said, you know, there's one thing. As wise as the wise man is and as foolish as the foolish man is, they both will meet exactly the same end. What is it? Death. So then he asks this question. Why then have I been wise? He said, I, what I should have done is just look at the life of the fool. I eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. Enjoy life to its fullest, because tomorrow I'm going to die. You want to say amen to that? I mean, that is the perspective. Isn't that really the perspective of so many people today? They are living for the moment and not even thinking about them tomorrow, let alone 10 years from now. And so Solomon's just making that observation. So when we put all this into what Paul is saying, he keeps driving us back. From him the source, through him the means, to him the goal are all things. Everything we do is important to God. And then these massive macro things he's been talking about in chapters 9, 10, 11, it's true there. So the only response is worship. To him be glory forever. All right? I'm very, glad I'm very glad we're done with Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'm done with it, unless you are have any questions. All right, I hope it was valuable to work. We spent a lot of time on these three chapters, but they are extremely important chapters for understanding even what's going on in our world today.
All right, we're going to move into Chapter 12 then. And if you are following in your outline, Glenn had reminded you if you have uh, your outlines or your, you use them, uh, here's just a good place to note a very, very significant change. Because now in 12, 1 through the end of the book, Chapter 16, Verse 27, I entitled this, Duties, How the Justified Are to Live. Now, the thesis of the book of Romans is we are justified by faith, and every, everything's built around that. First three chapters, he shows the universal condemnation of all humanity and why God needs to justify us, and, and all that. I'm not going to go through the whole book. But now he asks this question, okay, you're justified, you're in the process of being sanctified, what does your life look like? What, what should the justified life that's in the process of being sanctified look like? And so in, in, it's this very typical of Paul. If you see it in Galatians, you see it in Ephesians, you see it in Philippians. He has a lot of doctrine at the beginning of the book, and then at the end he just loads all this practical stuff. So here's your doctrine. This is how it should affect your life. Sound doctrine produces godly living. So here's the God of living. And so he starts. It's really interesting how he does this. He starts using almost the language of the Old Testament. I appeal. You, I, I, if I were translating it, I would translate it. I exhort you. It's a strong word. I think the King James says, I beseech you. But I appeal to you. To me, that it could be stronger. I exhort you. Therefore. Now, I know you know this, but let's just comment on that for just a moment. As you know, whenever you see the word therefore, it's, it's connecting what he's about to say with what he's been saying. So I'm drawing a conclusion. Paul, this is Paul now. I'm drawing a conclusion. I'm, I'm drawing an inference here. I'm making an inference based on. So how far back do we go? I would go back to chapter one <laughs> based on everything I've been saying in this book. There's a practical application to all this. So again, what he uses here is language of the Old Testament. I appeal, I exhort you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. You could translate that because of the mercies of God. Now, that's something he's been talking about. We just read about it four or five times in the previous paragraph. By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice, a sacrifice that is living, that is holy, that is, I'm, I'm translating, rearranging the words. All those rearrangements are legitimate. But he's driving home a point. In the new covenant arrangement, there are sacrifices. Were there sacrifices in the old covenant arrangement? Yeah, burn offering, peace offering, sin offering. You might go back to Leviticus, you see all that. And so in the old covenant, there were sacrifices. In the new covenant, there is a sacrifice. You present your bodies. <clears throat> as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. Why do you think he put it that way? He could have said, present yourselves. Present you to God. But he says, you present your, your bodies. Holy Spirit dwells in the place of the Holy Spirit. The temple of the Holy Spirit. You know? The body important to God? This isn't a faith that's just interested in the spiritual. It's interested in the physical. How important is the physical body to God? How important? Very important. How very important is it? How do you know it's very important to God? 
holy. Okay, it's holy, but how do you know it? He designed it. What's that? I say God designed it. Okay, God designed it. We're a creation of his, but you're, I, I'm, I'm playing like a dentist. I'm trying to pull, extract <laughs> something from you. It's so important to God because he's going to resurrect it. It isn't just for this age, it's for eternity. And so you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what God is saying is, I want to present yourself to me, your body, even in its sinful condition, where you're still in the process of sanctification, still struggling with a pension to sin. Present yourself to God. Notice that's language. Living, holy, acceptable. We're living, we're not dead. I mean, we're alive, but you know, you can you can you can embellish that quite a lot. Living a supernatural, eternally significant life to God. That's how I view my life now. It's holy. Because that's the argument of Romans 6. I'm identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, therefore I'm holy. I've been declared holy, which is what justification is. In God's eyes, I am holy. So what I am presenting myself. Positionally, I'm holy. Practically, I'm holy. I'm presenting myself positionally. I am holy. That's justification. But practically, I'm presenting myself as holy and acceptable. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were needed to be acceptable. They had to follow certain procedures. And if you go back and read Leviticus, it's a real yawn. Or you're having struggle with insomnia. Start reading Ecclesiastes or Leviticus, you're probably going to, if it's 1030 at night and you're sleepy anyway, you probably will fall asleep. And it's okay. It's all right. But it's not, God didn't write it, Leviticus for a cure to our insomnia. But the acceptable nature of an Old Testament sacrifice was based on, you know, pretty rigid, formal things that had to be done. But acceptable to God. Uh, an acceptable sacrifice is one that is loving obedience to the Lord. I'm doing this out of my love for you. I present myself to you because I love you, all you've done. And then he adds that word, which is, uh, I should not word that phrase, which is your spiritual worship. To present yourselves your bodies, a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God is worship. It's worship. Now, this question could be very convicting, and it, I don't necessarily want it to be, but yet I, I want it to be. <clears throat> when do you do this? How often do you do this? What does it look like to do this? Theoretically, you should do it all the time. Okay. Every day. You were going to say every day, even, and that's legitimate. Presenting ourselves, presenting our bodies to the Lord as a reasonable, living, acceptable sacrifice, which is worship, is a daily, but it's a 24-7 thing. Isn't it? If everything I do, and again, I'm mixing some of the themes of Ecclesiastes with this, but if everything I do is eternally significant to God, that everything I do is worshipful to God. That's the argument Paul makes in Colossians 3.22 and following. Work is a form of worship. It should be done with that attitude. Excellence is my goal in my work. Paul is saying, because my boss is Jesus. Do you do substandard work for Christ? Do you do half of the job for Christ? No, no. Now, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see this is a this is a profound thought. It's really a directive. It's it's an imperative. It's a command. Because of who I am in Christ, the indicative necessitates the imperative, the command. Because of my position in Christ, this naturally should follow. 
My position in Christ, Christ should be reflected in how I live. And so Paul is saying, you begin by presenting yourself to the Lord as a sacrifice. <clears throat> how many, I'm sorry, Joe, I'm just getting a little warm. Winter hasn't come yet, so I still take off my jacket. Um, and I don't want anybody to answer this question, but just, just to think about it. Do you think most Christian believers today understand the importance of verse 1? Or do many Christians today kind of compartmentalize their lives? Okay, here's what I do on Sunday. Here's what I do on Sunday morning from 1030 till noon. But what I do on Sunday morning from 10.30 till noon doesn't really have a lot to do with what I do 7 a.m. on Monday morning or Saturday or whatever day of the week. It kind of compartmentalized a lot. Here's my spiritual duties. Here's the rest of my life. And these two aren't linked at all. I'm being very crass there, almost unkind. But I've been in ministry a long time in academic settings and in church. And my observation is that's how a lot of people are living their lives. Yeah, I, I don't think that's an understatement. <laughs> well, it's just, and I'm, I'm trying not to be condemnatory. That's not my job, for goodness sake. But it's just, we need to take seriously, because I think many Christians, for whatever the reasons there are in their lives, many Christians have never really faced this challenge. Because Paul is laying down a challenge here to Christians. If the first 11 chapters are true, 12 through 16 should reflect that. If you believe what I, Paul's been arguing in chapter 1 through 11, then 12 through 16 should necessarily reflect that. All right, let's get out from under the table of conviction and move on. Verse 2. How do I do that? How do I present my my body as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, which is worship. How do I do that? So look at what he says in verse 2. This too is a command. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That result clause by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, perfect. So I not only present my body to God as a sacrifice, I also present my mind to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Transformation, by the way, transform is the word, we get a word metamorphosis from that. So, I mean, this, is, this isn't just a cursory, superficial transformation. This is a total transformation. And the word transformation, there's no better word that really summarizes what sanctification is the process is all about the transformation. Father is transforming us into the image of his son, through the Holy Spirit. When he says, do not be conformed to the world, to this world, what does he mean by that? When he uses the word world, what does he mean by that? Other people? Non-believers. It could, it could be people, it could be non-believers, but it's not only that. What, you and, what Woody and Glenn have said are correct. But it's not only unbelievers. Paul uses the word "world." Jesus uses the word "world" a lot. John, in his gospel and in his epistles, uses the term "world" a lot. World is that system that stands opposed to God, ruled by Satan. And a, a synonym for world would be the kingdom of darkness. The world would be that system, if I can use that word, but I think it's the right word, a system in which you and I live. When you and I go out, when we leave this building, which is a church and so on, we go out into the world, 
you know, and it's it's not institutions, it's not buildings, but it's that system. It's unbelievers inhabit the world system. You and I don't any longer. We Jesus says in John 17, 13 through 18, Father, they as I was in the world but not of the world, I'm sending them to be in the world but not of the world. And so we're in the world system, but we're not of it. Because we belong to the new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And so now we live in the world. And so Paul is, Paul is hitting on something. We're in the world. But, and Philip, J.B. Phillips in his paraphrase of this says, do not let the world press you into its mold. That makes sense. Because, I mean, I, I've watched my children, you know, they're now adults, they have their own kids and all of that. But I watched my children in those teen years. That was a great challenge for them. All around them was this world system that was, some of it was very evil, some of it was just very tempt- tempting, and a lot of it was just stupid and unwise. And you're just struggling with your kids. My desire uh, in those years, I wanted to lock my children up into a room and let them out when they were 30. That was that was how I viewed parenting. But that you can't do that. Well, you and I are the same way. That's one of the reasons when you study the history of the church, there have been segments in church history Well, the way I'm going to live this out, not be conformed to the world, is I'm going to lock myself in a monastery on top of a mountain and nobody's ever going to see me. And I'm going to just spend my whole life reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, and and copying the Bible, which is what they did for centuries. Therefore, I will not be conformed to the world. I grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. The southern part of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania is inhabited by Amish, the old Anabaptist heritage coming from Europe in the Reformation. And that's exactly the Amish. They take this. This is very serious. We are isolating ourselves. We are forming our own sub-community in America, and we will live by the rules of God. We will have nothing to do, the word they determine, or word they use is the English. We will have nothing to do with the English. Honestly, you study their history, it hasn't worked real well. So Paul is picking up on what Christ said in John 17. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Because being in the world, we have that continual challenge of being conformed to the world. Paul says, don't. Be transformed. How am I, when I'm living in the midst of a dark kingdom, representing Jesus who's the light of the world, and I don't want to be conformed to that world, what's the first step of transformation? The renewal of our minds. Would that be called a spiritual experience by any chance? Okay, I'm sorry, Woody. Would you repeat that question? That renewal of a mind. Yes. Would that be like a spiritual experience? Oh, I see what you said. Well, yes, it could be a part of it. But what what is the what is the content of that spiritual experience? What are you doing? How do you go about renewing your mind? Let's put it another way. If renewing your mind means I'm beginning to think the way God thinks about things. I'm beginning to see and analyze things the way God did. How do I know that? What do I do? How do I go about doing that? What's in front of you? Some of you have it in print. Some of you have it on your phone and computer whatever. It's God's word. Wouldn't you agree with that? You renew your mind by saturating your mind with the things of God. And how do you know the things of God? His word. If you, if you study 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, the Apostle Paul talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in mind renewal. How the Holy Spirit in his teaching ministry in our lives, using his word, renews our mind. And then at the very end of that little paragraph, verse 16, Paul makes one of the most audacious statements I've ever read in Scripture. You have the mind of Christ. 
So the goal of mind renewal, that's why I always like to connect the two, the goal of mind renewal is 1 Corinthians 2.16, to have the mind of Christ. They have to think through that. What does that mean? Does that mean all of it, I'm omniscient? I know everything exhaustively? Don't think it that what it means. That's not what it means. You and I did not become omniscient, but it, what it means is, and that's the whole argument he's been making, what it means is, we begin to think the thoughts after God. We begin to see things the way God sees things. We begin to see people the way God sees people. And, and you begin to structure the decision-making aspects of your life around God's perspective on things. And how do I know God's perspective on things? Through his word. Oprah Winfrey's not going to give you God's perspective on things. Dr. Phil is not going to give you God's perspective. Washington, D.C. is not going to give you God's perspective on things or any other source you can think of. Now, it doesn't mean that some of those individuals in those categories may not have something to say, but you start. I always used to teach my students, the very first question you should ask is, has God spoken to this issue? And if that's an important question to you, how do you find out the answer to that? By going to work. <laughs> You know, you use a concordance, you get a lexicon, whatever it is, and you try to figure out, is there some place in God's word where he's spoken to this issue? And so this is an incredibly important command. Transformation begins with renewal of your mind. How long does that take? It really takes our entire life. If I can, and I, I think... It's legitimate to say this. I believe in heaven we will go on learning. When we get our resurrected bodies, we're not going to be omniscient. We're going to go on learning. But the noetic effect of sin, noetic is from a Greek word I mean mind, the effect that sin has on our minds will be removed. And I find that really exciting, don't you? I think we're going to instinctively be speed readers. <laughs> I really do. I think instinctively we're going to have the desire and sense of discovery. We're going to want to keep learning about all things. I've read some guys who speculate on a couple of verses in Scripture. They go a little wide with it, but they, you know, one guy that wrote, you know, if God created this entire vast universe with all of these galaxies that are billions of light years away, the new Webb telescope is looking at some of those galaxies, billions of light years away. If God created all those things, do you think we're going to be able to investigate and discover what? I'm not really confident in saying, no, we won't. I mean, isn't that it? I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but when you start thinking, isn't it exciting to think of what our minds will be like in the new heaven and new earth and the noetic effect of sins and movement and resurrected bodies and go on learning? I've often kidded with my students said, when we're in heaven, Moses will lead Bible studies on the Pentateuch. Paul will lead a Bible study on Romans. And we're going to finally find out what those difficult passages really mean. I don't know if that's true. But I do think the mind renewal and transformation begins. But notice, I want to finish this before we end. Notice the result clause of verse 2. Renewal of your mind with this intended result. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. And then it's apposition. I have an equal sign after that. The will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. That's pretty good. But don't miss the point he's making. You begin the process of discernment to determine God's will with God's word. Now, go ahead, and guys. I'm going to write something on the board. Good up. I'm sorry, this pen isn't very dark. It doesn't look like there's another one in this room. There are three dimensions to God's will. 
There are three dimensions to God's will. God's sovereign will, God's moral will, God's individual will. God's sovereign will. Now, you know what sovereign means, and, and we talked about that before. You're real familiar with that. But God's sovereign will, you and I will never know with 100% certainty God's sovereign will until it happens. What's God's sovereign will in the war in Ukraine? Do you know the answer to that question? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm hoping I can figure out know what it is if Vladimir Putin is going to lose, but I don't know that. So what is the only acceptable response of the believer to God's sovereign will? Submission. There's no other acceptable response. If this is God's sovereign will, the only acceptable response of that is he's sovereign, I'm not to submit to him. What is the only acceptable response of the believer to God's moral? What's his moral? Well, that's what's revealed in Scripture. A good summary of that, among other places, is the Ten Commandments. But also, we're just studying. These are imperatives. These are commands. It's the moral will of God. What's the only acceptable response of the believer to God's moral will? Obedience. If God's moral will is revealed in the form of command, my only acceptable response to that is, okay, Lord, I don't want to do it. That I'm going to believe because you have the best design for my life. I will do what you're asking me to do. If you don't want me to lie, by your grace and dependence on you, I'm not going to do that. You you want me to be a, a an individual who sees people the way you see people as of infinite worth and value because the greater image of the Lord, I will see them that way. Help me to do that. Now the individual will, now you've got to remember, because this is moral, this is sovereign. Individual will, we're talking about the non-moral decisions of life. We're not talking about should I lie? That's already answered here. Should I lust? That's already answered here. Should I steal? That's already answered here. For the individual are the non-moral decisions of life. When you're working with college-age kids, this is what they're thinking about. Where should I try to find a good job? That's the individual of God. That's a non-moral issue. Unless you're considering prostitution or gambling or something like that which is a moral issue, but you know what I mean. And you, okay, they, they find a position. Then the next is, who should I marry? Or the house I should buy. I mean, just all these myriad of individual decisions. And so the struggle we have, we struggle with submitting to this, but it's there. We wrestle all our lives with obedience to God's moral law. But this is often where our roots because this is... <laughs> So it's really important to me. I'm wrestling with this. I submit to this business. Because these things are the big things of life. And so what Paul is saying is, if you're renewing your mind, you're developing the mind of Christ, will enable you to submit to God's sovereign will, walk in loving obedience with his moral will. And this is the, notice the words, good Acceptable, perfect. The, the word perfect means complete, mature. You know, the Old Testament, you know, one word the Old Testament uses for those is wisdom. The individual will in these non-moral areas of life is that capacity, that discernment to make wise decisions. So you have a 27-year-old who has $200,000 of, of college debt. He just got married. Should he consider buying a $2.5 million home? Assuming he can get a loan for that. About, you know, but th that doesn't seem like that's a wise decision. It's not necessarily an immoral decision, but it certainly doesn't seem like it's a wise decision. Or he's going to buy an automobile. Should he buy a Bentley? <laughs> you maybe don't know what a Bentley is. It's an English car that's very old and very expensive. You know, probably that doesn't, that's, that's not wise. So Paul is saying renewal of your mind, scripture, you're beginning to develop the mind of Christ, gives you that capacity of discernment. That's the word used here, discernment. It's an Old Testament word. Discernment is insight into the consequences 
of our choices. If we choose to disobey God's moral will, discernment teaches, you're going to see a very serious set of consequences if you violate God's moral will. If you commit adultery, you steal, you murder, you may be a child of God, but you will seriously suffer the consequences of making decisions like that. Back to the more practical. I mean, this is one of the things I saw with my children. My five-year-old son, he's now 39, but my five-year-old son had absolutely no discernment at all. He just acted, which is typical five-year-old. By the time he was 16, I was hoping he showed a little more discernment. Well, it was there. But I didn't really see discernment manifested in my son until he got married. And then when they had their first son, all of a sudden, my son is extremely mature, extremely wise. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But do you understand what I'm saying? And what Paul is saying here is, because he's really talking here about the process of sanctification. You present your bodies as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. It's a reasonable form of worship. Then you seek not conformity to the world, but transformation. And that begins with renewing your mind. Has God spoken to this issue? I want to know God's mind on this. The only way you're going to find that out is by immersing your mind in his word. And the intended result of that is a wise, discerning life. That was a great place on Amen. Nobody <laughs> said it, as my pastor always says. But you can see why if, if all, of, all of he's been saying in the first 11 chapters is true, then what he's saying here is reasonable. If all of this is true, and I've been justified, I'm declared righteous, I'm holding God's eyes, and I'm now in the process of being transferred in the image of Jesus, how I live my life is a real important, real important issue. And step one, now you're a believer. Now you've been declared righteous. You're holding God's eyes. How are you going to live? Right out of the shoot, what did you start thinking about? I want my body to be an instrument of righteousness. And I want my mind to reflect the righteousness, holiness, and wisdom of God. So that I can be discerning. Got it? Got it. Got it. All right. Any questions there online or and there aren't any in the room here, but online. Everybody nope. with me? Good. All right, good. I heard a nope, and I had good, so I'm going to move on. I only have about three or four minutes, but let me introduce this next section. <clears throat> what the Apostle Paul is, is going to call for here, that's a terrible sentence. What he's going to focus on here is the gifts, the gracious gifts God gives us to serve him and serve others. And so he's crossing in, and we'll only get into this next week, but he's crossing into that area, which is a bit controversial, it's a a little bit provocative, even in the 21st century, of spiritual gifts and what do they look like. But let's look at just the beginning as we transition to the next part of this practical discussion. For by the grace given to me, that's Paul, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Let's stop right there. Isn't that something that in the early church, around 60 AD or so is when Paul writes this letter, that people were struggling with self-elevation? Isn't that something? That in the church, people were struggling with self-elevation. People were struggling with pride. People were thinking highly of themselves. 
In the early church, people were standing and putting their thumbs in their suspenders and saying, I deserve to be recognized. Because look at all I have done. So Paul says, by the grace given to me, I say that, what does he mean by the grace given to me? The, great, the Greek word for grace is karitas. Greek word is charis, the grace. God's given him, what, what grace is he? He's apostolic, he's an apostle. The apostle Paul, in verse 3, is issuing an apostolic exhortation. He's issuing, and if I can, this is really important, he's issuing an apostolic command. Because Jesus said this. <laughs> Jesus said this, and he's paraphrasing it, point Jesus makes. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So if you were to summarize that exhortation in one word, what would that word be? Humility. Got it. That's right, Glenn. Humility. It's a call to humility. I one time heard a story, I, I think it's a true story, about D.L. Moody. You all know that name, D.L. Moody, great 19th century evangelist in England. And he was in America and traveled to England several times. Died in 1899. But he struggled with pride. He really did. He was, you know, he, he came out of a very poor background. He was a shoe salesman in Massachusetts, ended up in Chicago still selling shoes, and just an incredible escalator of achievement. Incredible man. And he was struggling with pride with all that he accomplished for the Lord and so on. And one of his very close friends, who was actually the leader of a lot of his, um, the song part of his crusade, um, said, listen to what I want you to do, D.L. D.L., Dwight L. Moody was his full name, but D.L. Then in Chicago, I want you to go out in the streets of Chicago and all day walk around the streets with a big sign. One side the sign says, the end is near. The other side says, John 3.16. So Moody went out and did that. All day he did that. And his dear friend thought that this would just help to give a degree of needed humility for him. So he comes back that night, takes the sign off, and he says, nobody else would have done that. <laughs> you get that? Was he cured of, of that? No, he wasn't cured of that. Even in all the humility of walking around Chicago for most of the day, no one else would have done that. So the call to humility is the core meaning of servitude. And Jesus said, the Gentiles lord it over, but you, you serve, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And then how did Jesus illustrate servanthood? It's in John 13 when he washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus elevated servanthood to the epitome of the Christian life. So Paul is saying the same thing Jesus said and the same thing Jesus modeled. And so this extraordinary series of exhortations and commands that are in chapter 12 are based on the theology of Romans 1 through 11. Because all this is true, this is how you should live now. This is a pretty radical call to transformation. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And not being of the world, that's what this looks like. All right? To be continued next week. Now, we didn't get very far today, and you know whose fault that is. No, I'm just kidding. It was great. Great. Thank you for the good interaction, good questions. All right, man, I'm going to pray here. we got to get going. Father, thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for the study we've done of these first 11 chapters. I think all the men would agree. Some of this has been hard. It stretches us. But it's some of the most important material in the scriptures for us to understand who we are in Christ, where he's taken us, what our new identity is. Now we're beginning the study of what does this justified life look like. So I just pray your Holy Spirit will not only help us to understand these verses, but more importantly, in the words of 1 Corinthians 2, to welcome, to embrace these truths, to make them a part of our inner lives so that they transform us from the inside out. We want to have the mind of Christ. We want to see things and understand things the way Christ does. And we want his wisdom, his discernment in living our lives.
Be with these men. Thank you for each one of them. May they be strong men of faith who seek to represent you well in all they do and say. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you next week.